Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Welcome back to A Different Kind of Walk. Uh, We are glad that you are here joining us today. Um, I always encourage you to share um, these postings with with friends so we can continue to expand our circle. So feel free to do that. Uh, Today, we're excited to have a very special guest, and I would like to invite Susan to introduce her. Hey, so... Today, I'd like to introduce you to a friend and mentor of mine, Shauna Cummings. So Shauna and I met 13 years ago, and at the time, she was one of the leaders of an edgy young church in Feasterville, Pennsylvania, um, and she was running a like 10 or so, 10-bedroom community house that, yes. we called, that we called The Compound, but we'll talk about that more. Or The Big House. The Big House. <laughs> Um, And since then, she's been a pastor, a spiritual director, an incredible homeschooling mom and wife, Mm -hmm. and has continued to be a support to my community in Bristol uh, from afar. So, Shauna, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. That was a very kind introduction, and it certainly has been my privilege to know you. So thank you for having me today. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was because when Gary and I were first church planting and first dating, uh, we learned a lot about community and hospitality from you. So I figured we could talk about the big house, the compound. Um, So how did it get started and what did it become? Oh, the, the big house was such a huge part of our lives um it's and it is to some extent really sad to me that it's still in my it's in my past now um but i loved it and the it came from um when rob and i my husband is rob and when we were dating and had just first gotten married i really wanted to do something that looked like intentional life sharing mentoring with young women who were aging out of the foster care system and we were kind of exploring how to do that where were we going to make that happen. Um, and I was, you know, five minutes old and no clue about the system. So I really didn't know how that was all going to come together. Um, and then lo and behold, Rob's mom invited us over for dinner one night and said, listen, um, she had a mess and she's like, I can no longer manage this 7,500 square foot, three story, uh, ancestral home. I'm going to deed it to you. Um, it's yours. Knock yourselves out. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like all oh, my Christmases come at once. This is going to be amazing. Um, and of course, uh, dreams sometimes when they find their feet are not as pretty. So it was a mess. And we ended up having to get like six 30-yard dumpsters. And there was untold quantities of some of the vilest trash you've ever seen in Western civilization that we had to remove. And then came the, the paper side of things, trying to make things happen. Working with the system is rarely easy. Um, It is paperwork (laughs) inhibitive. 
Uh, and we found ourselves in a legal struggle that was really difficult to deal with underage people and people who are now declared adults. Um, and we eventually decided we would just, we would take people who would voluntarily come to live in this home and very specifically said, I'm just going to trust that God's going to bring the people that we need. Um, and in 15, nearly 15 years of doing it, uh, never, never once did I have a bedroom that was empty for longer than about a month. Um, mm -hmm. But that somebody would sometimes literally show up on my porch and knock on the door and say, somebody told me you help people. Mm. And I say, um, who are you and who sent you? <laughs> and they, you know, I am so-and-so and, and I heard about you through this church or I heard about you through this friend or you, this person used to live there and said you could do what, you know, do what you need. Um, and I was like, okay. And seriously, 15 years of people just showing up and saying, I need, I need three months. I need a year. Um, I need five years. <laughs> I need, mm. I need this certain amount of time. And in that time, we would talk about everything from, oh my gosh, I'm getting married and I, I don't know what sex is to um, how do you deal with money when, you know, you have none? <laughs> uh, and all of the complicated questions in between, there were parenting questions, there were how to do your laundry questions, you know, how do you make mac and cheese? <laughs> we really just dealt with what does it look like to live life and to do it in an integrated way? And how do I knit that together back in myself? Um, when, when so many of the people who came were coming from a broken place, sometimes it was broken financially, sometimes it was broken spiritually, sometimes it was a combination of those, sometimes it was family brokenness. Um, I tend to believe that we're all broken. Um, the question is how and how does God fit healing for you and make it mm -hmm. fit and then re retwine that inside brokenness and put yourself back together. That's beautiful. That so, but before you go further, I just have a clarifying question. So sure. when you were this young person with this idea, mm -hmm. were you, um, did you have social work background at all or ministry background? What, what, um, what drove it? Where, where were you at that point when then you had this vision for this? It's so funny. Um, a friend of mine asked me that one years ago. She asked me, she's like, Sean, I don't understand this drive in you for, for social justice. Um, she, you seem like a very typical, uh, well-to-do suburban person. Like you shouldn't be this driven about this driven about brokenness. Um, but the truth is, um, I come from a broken background. My, uh, my mom had two marriages before she would find the man that I would call dad. And they were married for 32 years before he passed. Mm. Um, and those, those first two marriages were very broken, very broken indeed, and left a very broken little girl in their wake. Uh, so as I grew up, like dealing with some of those pieces really drove my need for understanding of myself, which created an environment for compassion in others. Um, and that drove me to camp. During college, I worked at um, camps and specifically found a real passion and joy in working with teenagers who were able to have these really great conversations without the need for social artifice and like hiding behind something. Right. Like, no, they didn't like it. They're like, this, I don't like it. That's what's up. <laughs> You're like, that's fantastic because I can deal with a frontal assault. Like I can deal with confusion and 
struggle around an idea or a goal or a purpose or even something that somebody else put on you. I can deal with that. Um, it's a little hard to deal with the like sideways um, comments, this, the, the veiled attempts at, you know, snark and, and discussion. Mm. So I like teenagers for that. They're just really all out in the shop window. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of where it came from is this my own personal brokenness and a need to understand how God was weaving me back together after environment and uh, family and life sort of had broken me internally. And I'm still doing that. I still do that work today. Like, how do you put that back together inside when something fundamental was sort of snatched away really young? So this really started right out of college then. Oh, agreed. Yes, for sure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's beautiful. I feel like we should describe the house. Um, so you had, it was a three acre property. Was that right? Or no, what? actually it was just an acre. The house itself was a um, Penn's grant property. Um, so William Penn granted out property to, you know, privileged and wealthy people in Britain who were coming over to here, which it wasn't the United States. Actually, this is a funny story. He'll like this. When my husband and I were dating, he said, listen, I want to show you my family's house in England. Um, and I was like, or rather, I think he said it used to be in England. And I'm like, and you have to know that I was raised in Colorado. So the idea of any building being older than a hundred years old is really not really in my frame of reference. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I'm going to take you to my family's house. It used to be in England. And I'm thinking, okay, wacko, this is so our last date. <laughs> <laughs> And he takes me to this house and it's abandoned and it's got trash in it and there's spider webs. And I am really not a creepy crawly person. Like, mm -mm, no, no, this is not okay. And he starts tromping through this house and loses me mm -hmm. uh, on a stairwell that no longer exists. Cause we took that part off the house cause it was bad. And he was like three rooms ahead of me, probably in the master bedroom. Um, and I had no idea where he went. And there was no electricity in the house. And I was in the dark, literally. And this is before cell phones. So mm -hmm. no flashlight on my phone, no flashlight that we had brought in. It was daylight when we started. And by the time we got to the end, it was dark. And I just started hollering. Oh, you know, they yeah. say when you get lost in the forest, you should just sit down. Yeah. <laughs> I sat on the stairs and I was like, Robert! <laughs> oh, I don't know where I am! <laughs> <laughs> Like, he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I forgot you don't know the house. I'm like, uh-huh. You're going to be sorry. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure out how this house is in England. And then it dawns on me. Oh, my gosh. This house existed before the United States, which is pretty cool. Um, but it's a 7,500 square foot house. Um, sits in kind of a U shape. Had 10 bedrooms, three kitchens, four living rooms, I think. Three or four living rooms. Um, the main kitchen was like a massive 400 square foot space uh, with a huge, huge picnic table that my husband's grandfather had built back in the 50s. Um, it was just this really, like, I feel like if God was going to design a house that was going to force people to share space and, and graciously give them a lot of room to do that in with lots of ability to go back and close your door and be like, nope, not right now. <laughs> this house was it. Um, who has 10 bedrooms today? 
I know. And they weren't even small. So no. like the bedrooms in like the main part of the house, the four upstairs bedrooms in the main part of the house, yeah. you could fit like two king size beds in some of them. Like they were big rooms. It was, they crazy. were 15 by 15 foot square. Yeah. Um, larger than some Manhattan like apartments. Yeah. Yeah, oh just the bedrooms. So just the bedrooms. Yeah. Yep. And then and there's a bathroom upstairs and there's a little kitchenette upstairs. And um then coming out of the kitchen, this huge kitchen was this small little staircase. And yeah. nobody really went up this small little staircase. And one day I Ever. like I like snooped up there. And so there was this whole back hallway that was like a a narrow hallway that could go to the bathroom and like the master bedroom and this other random little tiny room. And I was like, this is the servants quarters. No way. (laughs) Um, And so I fell in love with this room and that's the, that's where I ended up living. I lived with Shauna for a year. Um, and it was really, really awesome. So, but that's the main house. Then it's like someone took another like two bedroom house and plopped it on one side and then took a like three story, two or three story, um, like efficiency apartment and plopped it on the other side. So you Mm -hmm. have all of these different things together um, with a huge yard in front and a huge yard and garden in the back. And it, yeah, it was just crazy. I think what was most interesting about that house, its structure is certainly fascinating. And if I was an architect, you could probably study for days. Uh. Uh, but what was super fascinating, because back in the day, they wrote deeds that spoke about not just the property itself. Certainly that was described Um, but also spoke to the nature of the ownership and what was being um, deeded and why. Um, And this house had this just unbelievable history of living out hospitality. It was owned by the Quakers initially. And when they were building onto it, there's this story in this deed about how an aunt had lost her husband and was now widowed. Um, and didn't want to get married again and had nowhere to go. And so they built on this whole addition just for her. And they deeded it to her. They empowered her by giving her property ownership in a time period when women owned nothing. Mm. They were not allowed to own things, didn't even have bank accounts. And here's this woman who had lost everything and came back to her family and her family empowered her by giving her space and not just space to live, but space to own. And I was like, oh my gosh, that gives me goosebumps. Um, and then you read further and there's the story of like children who grow up and, and the son brings his wife home and they add on to the other end um, so that mom and dad can move into the smaller space and hear the kids take over and pick up the mantle of caring for the family, caring for the property and doing all those things. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is a beautiful thing that we've lost as society. Like we don't, we don't care for people who are, not useful to us in some capacity anymore like we don't do that and this house here is this living testament um to that happening very intentionally very legally um and then as we sold it the people who were moving in um i was so pleased because I, I will admit that i sobbed uh pretty hard i, I even do now um when we let when we left uh i was like man I really don't want this house to go to a corporate owner. I don't want it to go to somebody who's going to put apartments in here or a dentist office or whatever. I really want it to have a heart. Mm 
Um, and this contractor came through and bought the house and he lives there now with his wife, um, their kids and their adult daughter who lives there with her husband and their daughter and both sets of parents. And they have refitted the house so that they can care for all of these generations of people. Wow. Um, and I just feel like the house has this gorgeous lesson to teach about caring for one another. And it was, um, the big house is probably one of my most influential teachers in my life about what space can do in terms of hospitality, in terms of creating an environment for us to live life together and to process life together. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about the table, you know, you're invited to my table. That house gave us this luxurious opportunity to invite people to our lives. Um, and that was amazing. That's yeah. great. One of the phrases, I think you kind of mentioned it before, but we uh, reworded it um, and have quoted it inside Redemption a lot. And the, the phrase is just, it's not community until it sucks. Yeah. Preach. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, you did change that phrase a little bit. Yeah. Yes. They owned it. They owned it. They made it their own. I love it better. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. I didn't let my boys say that word, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they use but it all the time now. <laughs> it was so true. And I think it was, it's just admitting the fact that people, people are lovely, but people are also <laughs> complicated complicated yeah <laughs> and so it's and it's, messy and messy and you have to learn how to, yeah. like you know like different personalities don't get on super well and and like you have to learn and you have to grow and it um it changes you and and that idea was very comforting to mm. us especially in the early days of church planting and we did community living forever um and mm -hmm. we started lots of different houses of community living based off of the big house and um and yeah that comes with joy and community and the ability for young people to not be stuck in their parents houses you know things mm -hmm. like that but it also comes with like so-and-so didn't do the dishes and like so-and-so is really bad at cleaning the bathroom and or this person's never home so we just can't build a relationship with so-and-so and so like it's it's complicated um I think one of the things the big house taught me is that relationships rarely rarely die um over big issues like political ideology or you know whatever you might want to bring to the table relationships die because day to day we fail to do the dishes <laughs> we fail to be kind and gracious with each other's faults we we fail to show up and just have dinner together um we we fail to create space for each other we fail to listen and these are all just daily disciplines these are not massive breaks the world oh my gosh i didn't know you were a neo-marxist like, like these are these are like no you failed to be respectful and kind on the daily and now i don't have room for you in my life or now i'm choosing um which is another good lesson of the big house that no is an okay answer mm. failure is an option mm -hmm. it is okay to acknowledge this experiment isn't working on some level let's try something else um, in fact, I think, I don't know, Susan, if you remember this or not, we would write those kinds of things into our lease agreements. 
Um, Because I very, very strongly believed in lease agreements, not for myself. And I would say this out loud when we sign them, say, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to put this lease agreement here and we're going to write it in and you're going to contribute to it. Not because I need to be protected. I am protected. I own the property. I can kick you out today and be within my rights, but you need to be protected. You need to know that you have a legal leg to stand on and that there's room for you to come and say, listen, owner of the property with all the power, you don't have all the power and I need this space. Can we do this for me? Um, and I think that's really important that you balance the tables as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Big House is a great teacher. It's a yeah. great teacher. <laughs> Very much so. Um, so people tend to think that it's crazy raising children with random people around. True story. Um, yeah. And so with, with you guys, you had way more random mm-hmm. people showing up at your house and joining your house than we ever have. So what was that like for you? What was that like raising your son with people coming and going people Mm -hmm. that you maybe didn't know super well? I know you were wise about who you had in the house, but you were also compassionate and people are complicated. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, how, what was that like? Um, Well, once again, house to the rescue is an incredible tool um, for parenting Um, because one of the things that is really difficult to teach small children is boundaries Um, not just boundaries that are physical like we can't go through that door that space belongs to somebody else in the house right now Um, but also emotional and personal boundaries Um, bedrooms in our house were sacrosanct Um, And for Gavin in particular, who is an introvert, his bedroom was highly, highly prized. And we taught him that on purpose. Um, And his toys as well was when he was little, I said, listen, I'm not going to tell you, you have to share your toys because I've not met an adult yet who's forced to share their phone or their car or anything else they own. Um, We do. And I think that is the nature of being generous and hospitable to do so. But we cannot constrain somebody to share their belongings. And so we, we started that lesson and the big house gave us the opportunity um, with him young. Listen, your toys are your toys and you get to choose how you use them. Um, first lesson, if you break it out of negligence, you replace it, not me. Secondly, if you don't wanna share it, that's okay, but you also don't then get to play with it when other children are over. So those toys are going to go away, bring out the things you are willing to be generous with. Um, And he began to learn at the young tender ages of two and three, what it meant to have personal space and what it meant to be legitimately generous. Um, Because he was, he did errantly be generous with certain things and then his toys would get broken and he would be so upset. Um, And we learned, okay, actually, Now I understand what I can share and what I cannot share, what I can be generous with and what I cannot be generous with. Um, And the big house on a much, much larger scale, we are out here without extended family. My family all lives states away. Um, So for Gavin, the big house, those became his aunts and uncles. The people who lived with us to this day are his aunts and uncles. Susan, he loves you. You know, (laughs) he remembers living with you. Um, And the kids who lived in the big house with us are his cousins. We still go to their birthdays. He still talks about them, texts with them from time to time. Like those are his 
woven in, grafted in, um, extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a parent, especially a young parent, I was the oldest of five. So I did do some pseudo parenting. <laughs> My siblings are all relatively younger than me. Um, I actually wasn't going to have kids. I'm like, I did this, eh, not going to do it again. <laughs> and then we had Gavin and I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and I think as a young parent out here without access to extended family, um, the big house was once again, my very gracious teacher um, and the people who lived in it taught me as, as much as I ever was able to create space or to mentor them. I learned so many times about what it looks like to let my kid absorb a truth or witness a pain and be able to talk about it in a space that was safe. All right. So this happened. Um, the little kid next door stole your toy. <laughs> that's hard to deal with because that's theft and you feel violated. Um, and you lost your thing. That's grief. Uh, and you have to confront the sin. So now we have to have a hard conversation and figure out how to do it. Like, it was an unbelievable classroom for mm-hmm. raising a child. Um, and when we moved here, so now we obviously don't live in the big house anymore. I shouldn't say obviously, maybe you don't know that. Uh, We don't live in the big house anymore. Um, We actually all processed a pretty hefty level of grief for the first year living here without anybody else in the house and not having that access. So for Gavin in particular, like no aunts and uncles running in and out of the house, no cousins, no people. And the house got very quiet. We were like, I don't don't know to do with the silence. This is so weird. Uh, Um, but it was, it was a gift. And I mean, with every gift is its challenge, but I think that we are as parents who we are and Gavin is as a child who he is because the big house gave us space to parent and teach and talk and process um, in ways we never would have gotten if we didn't live there, especially being the parents of a, of a uh, single child. We didn't have siblings, so... Um, some of those corners got bumped off of him. He'll, he'll forever be an unusual only child. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also a very well boundary child. Like he'll tell you today, yeah, I'm I'm done. I have to go. I'm gonna go take a break. Um, I'll come back in a little bit, or we can. I can't do that right now. I don't have enough energy. Um, we have a very clear rule in the house. Like he'll probably I don't know three or four times a semester during school he'll just be like, Mom, I am done no spoons in the drawer. I got nothing left. I need a mental health day. Do it. His grades are great. And he communicates well, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, take it. I think it's one of the benefits of raising a kid in an environment like that is they now know, right? Like that's intrinsic. That's there's no teaching him that now that's just intrinsic. Yeah. Which is really, he's still with you in, in, in school. Yeah. He, he goes to Ben Salem high school. He graduates in June. Lord willing, um, <laughs> Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Graduation I'm happens. Just about June. to say that from my days in Texas. That's right. That's right. So, i I do want to talk to you about the past, what the past year or so has been like for you, because I know that it's been hard. Um, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure what direction to come at it from. So, there's 
the church loss angle. Yes. There is your mom's cancer scare. There is yeah. your best friend and her illness. There's your cat. There's, <laughs> there's the pandemic and you're a very extroverted person. So I'm wondering how we can tell some of these stories and connect them to your experience of mental health and relationships. Mercy, Susan, could you ask a bigger question? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you hit all the, all the, I was going to say the high points, but really the low points. Um, <laughs> it's been, um, it's been a year. Like it has been a year. Um, I think it came on the backside. We've talked about this a lot in our house. Uh, this year came on the backside of, you know, the pandemic and insanity of a global trauma that uh, people kind of want to talk about as a medical crisis, but don't want to talk about the the mental health impact on a global level trauma. Like we, if we can somehow look back and look at like the black death or even the flu pandemic of, of 1920 and say, wow, that was a massive impact on humanity. Uh, no wonder X, Y, or Z happened. No wonder this, you know, this followed that particular season in history. Um, like when you look at it that way, like World War II sort of makes sense sometimes. The world is going a little nuts. <laughs> like, I do have to wonder about some of the unrest that comes when we get locked into our houses and lack the connection to the broader stability of community. When we get stuck in, like, not just the social media silos, but when we get stuck in our little tiny silo that looks like the four walls of your house, all of a sudden we start telling stories in our head about our uselessness about um, just the general lack of anybody needing my voice anymore. Nobody talks to me anymore. I'm not talking to anybody anymore, but nobody talks to me is how we, we tell the story. In our. Mm -hmm. And the loneliness that comes. And I think you just hit the nail on the head. I'm an extrovert. I'm the only one in my house. Mm -hmm. um, my husband and son be pretty happy <laughs> to like see people maybe like twice a year. That'd be good. <laughs> like that's golden. We can have people for dinner and they're all full up. <laughs> like, like, can we have 20 people to dinner? I don't know. Say, I, I, you know what? Conservative, maybe twice a week. That'd be good. <laughs> like, <laughs> that would be amazing for me. So to live in a, in a, in a, in a period of life where, do you guys know spoon theory? Do you know what I'm saying when I'm saying yeah, spoon theory? It's this, and I don't even know where it came from. It has, to, it came, well, I should say, I don't know. It came from um, a group of people who are dealing like you, Jeff, like with like persistent and chronic illnesses and challenges that they're facing. And the idea is you start the day with um, a certain number of spoons. It could be you know, I have eight spoons of energy today, or maybe I have 10 spoons of energy. And the mm. question is, how many does it take to get yourself ready for the day? Like, well, I don't know. It takes me three spoons just to get through the shower and breakfast and get myself out the door and my son to school, right? Like we haven't even started the day and I've already spent three spoons. And maybe it takes me another five spoons to get through my day of work. Um, so now I'm down to two spoons. <laughs> I started with 10. I only got two left and y'all want me to come home and do what? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> Not spitting mm. my spoons on it. Nope. <laughs> and for extroverts, of course, we get spoons by being with people. And so every day I'm starting in deficit. And then we're like, oh, mom has breast cancer. Great. Now, not only does she have less spoons, she's freaking in Wyoming with it. And I'm out here in Philly. And like, what are we supposed to do about that? Um, and then my best friend, we think she has lung cancer. It's <laughs> like happens like six weeks after my mom's done with breast cancer. Um, and then dear friends lose two babies and she has a cancer scare. And then we lose my cat. And then my son is struggling with depression because he's locked in a room on YouTube, like every other teenager on the planet right now, <laughs> like, and just lost in spirals. That's been, wow, mental health is such a tiny word for the struggles of this year. Um, and yet even that has been a great teacher It's like, okay, if we're struggling and we're pretty aware and willing to talk about it, what must it look like in households where mental health is a derisive term, um, where, you know, maybe abuse is not just mental, but physical, uh, and in platform to talk about that, you know, opportunity to give people space to engage the conversation, you know, when we can. Uh, but it has been, Susan, to your point, a really insane year. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say about it. We're still, I feel like we're still just trying to like wake up every day is really mm -hmm. a good, is a good goal. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, we got up today and everybody had uh, food and everybody got to where they needed to get. And we all came home tonight and we're tucked in our beds. Uh, you know what? That's a win. Mm -hmm. We didn't do anything more. We didn't do anything less. That's a win today. I'm just going to take it. <laughs> um, you know, and then begin to have the conversation of what can we do to fill up the spoon drawer for ourselves individually and for our family? Like, what, what does that look like? Because we really do need to mm -hmm. find a way to, to grind out because graduation's coming, but we really need to get to a place where we can actually thrive instead of just make it. Mm. Um, so I have two questions for you. Sure. One is deeply philosophical and one's just kind of practical. I love so philosophical. Philosophical question is, um, is there chocolate in those spoons? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, yes, <laughs> whatever it takes <laughs> to get the energy. Sometimes there's whiskey in those spoons. Uh. <laughs> Sometimes there's chocolate. Sometimes for me, is ice cream. Um, <laughs> Chocolate so, ice cream, even better. All right. So there you go. There's your philosophical question. So, because, um, so we're both extroverts here with our good friend who's an introvert. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean she's a wallflower and she no. can't speak, as some people translate that, but she gets energy from mm -hmm. smaller gatherings. We get energy from the larger gatherings so um what ha what have you been doing to what has helped you in in gathering more spoons that is an excellent question and we are turning the corner i feel like in our house and part of the corner for me has been um you know what i need to increase my trusted circle so it needs to get bigger than our family and the the you know one or two other very, very close families that we've been meeting with. So that and Susan and I have been meeting for coffee. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I have been having lunch with, we call them the robot moms. So my son's on the robotics team at Ben Salem high school uh, and uh. <laughs> we call ourselves the robot moms and we, we meet for lunch and, and we have like, wow, it's starting to sound like I'm an alcoholic, but we have like a, a wine night once a month <laughs> and we just make a giant pitcher of sangria and, and we air all of our grievances and we laugh and we make fun of our kids And then we support our kids and then we go back to laughing at our kids and ourselves. (laughs) And it's been just amazing. Um, Like that's been a huge energy Mm. gift. Um, And then also acknowledging like that my needs for those kinds of spaces are not the same for my husband and son. So my husband doesn't necessarily need a weekly lunch and a breakfast uh, with somebody and a coffee and you know whatever else he he might need a weekly poker game but that would really he doesn't want to talk during the poker game he just wants to play poker mm. like the end <laughs> so you're a pretty pagan household with all this wine and gambling i know i'm not sure jesus loves us like <laughs> <laughs> um yeah he's a huge poker player so and and gavin is he's actually organizing a uh, hatchet throwing event with a few of his friends for sunday um so really allowing each of us to and my job in the house is i feel because i'm the talker um (laughs) is to force those answers out of my introverts because despite their lack of need to be with people all the time they are getting a little dark and they do need to have some reconnection Right. Um, so really pushing my son in the last week or two to say, Hey, I see that you're, you're lonely. I see you're overwhelmed. Part of that is lack of connection. How are you connecting? Well, I don't know. Nobody wants to do anything. I'm like, has anybody asked to do anything? No. Have you asked to do anything? No. So is nobody doing anything or has just nobody organized anything? He's probably nobody organized anything. All right, well, let's start there then. <laughs> what do we want to do? Let's go throw hatchets. You all seem to enjoy that on your birthday. Let's do that again. Um, let's go to a movie. Let's do, you know, whatever. And getting him to like re-engage. Um, and my husband, same thing. I'm like, well, let's let's start the poker thing up again. Who, who do you want to play with? Who do we want to staff that group with? And how often do we want to do it? Probably weekly is not realistic in everybody's lives. So what's realistic? So that has kind of been what we have been talking about in terms of let's fill the spoon drawer back up. Let's, let's give ourselves some room to thrive right? Um, and not just, just make it, which is okay. That is to say like in the world of mental health, if, like we always say in our house, no permanent solutions to temporary problems. So let's put the temporary problem on the table and talk about it and, and say that it's okay. If today the win is you just made it through the day, thank God. Thank God. You're breathing and that's a win. I'm going to take it. Mm-hmm. And maybe tomorrow there'll be a little extra spoons to talk about what we could do more. At least that's, the, that's how we address it in our house. So really great question, Jeff. I like that. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well.